one of the biggest questions I've been asking myself is, why have positive emotions been so deeply neglected? So I think of this as sort of the neglected role of positive emotions, and in particular, in this sort of deep understanding of mental illness. So looking at positive emotions in the field of psychopathology. We know a lot about negative emotions in psychopathology, and this has been important information really getting to the root of disorders ranging from anxiety, substance abuse, and depression. And this knowledge has been effectively disseminated to developing etiological models and disseminating effective treatments. Why we know far less about the role of positive emotions in understanding human health, but also human dysfunction, that I think is one of the biggest questions that I've been trying to tackle lately. And it's not a trivial question. In many ways, when we think about why should we care about this question, you know, why should we care about the fact that studying positive emotions has been absent in our understanding of severe and chronic mental illness, when I think about it, I think there's kind of two broad reasons why this question matters and why I've been spending time thinking about it. One of them is a practical reason, and one of them is a more theoretical reason and sort of how we think about what the human mind is. But I'll start with the practical. Um, the practical reason of why we should care about positive emotions in the first place and our sort of conceptualizations of human health and of severe mental illness is because, to put it really plainly, there's a huge societal burden with severe and chronic psychiatric diseases. Um, you know, we know that, for example, if we just look at substance use disorders alone, they're accounting for $500 billion a year in annual costs. Anxiety disorders not far behind in terms of costs relating to, you know, days missed in uh, work productivity, um, healthcare utilization. Um, we also know that many common and chronic disorders, thinking of depression or bipolar disorder, they're up in the top 10 causes of leading worldwide disability. And you may think, well, maybe we're talking about a small segment of the population, but quite contrary. We know if we just look at you know, lifetime prevalence rates across all of what we call the, the DSM, Axis I disorders, the kind of major clinical phenomena, um, you know, the World Health Organization has sort of mapped annual prevalence rates, looking at people at any point in their life who've ever met criteria. And you see that just within the U.S. alone, up to 50% of people, so one out of two at some point in their life, have met clinical criteria for a severe common psychiatric disorder, again, ranging from anxiety disorders to depression to substance use disorders. Um, and so in many ways, if we think about this, um, it's a practical concern because it affects many people and has huge societal costs and a huge burden um, on the individual and on society. And so to me, this really hastens the need to think from a scientific perspective about what are some of the mechanisms that we can probe more deeply to gain better insights into how the human mind works and what might be, as we call, fail points or break points when some of those psychological processes break down. And this is where I think the neglected role of positive emotion becomes important um, because it has the potential to really kind of delve deeply into the deep mechanisms of sort of how the human mind works and how we function on a daily basis, our emotions being a critical part of that. So that's sort of a practical reason to care about the neglected role of positive emotions and the way we study and think about psychopathology. But there's a more, I think, a theoretical reason why it matters. And this is equally compelling. 
So in some collaborative work recently um, I've done with Tanya Lombroso, a professor at UC Berkeley, we've been really tackling the question of what are some of the most common misconceptions about the human mind. And in many ways, when we think about the mind and what we know about the mind, it's in many ways the science of the mind is still in its infancy. Um, granted, there's been remarkable progress in recent years, sort of spanning levels of social, psychological, and neural levels of analysis, sort of providing insights into how we think the mind works. At the same time, newly emerging findings are suggesting that some of those intuitions are correct, whereas other lines of work are really kind of overturning the way we think about the mind, really opening up entirely new possibilities for how we think about the way we think, we feel, we reason, and the way we interact with others. And, you know, in many ways, these kind of misconceptions of the mind are really critical to understand because they have implications not just for the kind of scientific conceptualization of the mind, but also implications for well-being, intergroup relationships, you know, and even social and education policy. So I come to the back to the role of positive emotions, and here there's been a really long-standing misconception about the role positive emotions play in our psychological functioning and well-being. Um, and in part this is due because it's been a neglected topic, as I mentioned, in thinking about um, mental illness and psychopathology. Yeah, so when you think about, well, what is a positive emotion in the first place? So we think of emotions as these signals and pieces of information we get from the environment that sort of provide clues as to what's important and motivate our behavior to go in certain directions. So to be more concrete, an emotion is thought to be an evolutionary, really sort of hardwired response to our environment and it has many components. So when you feel fear, for example, you have a subjective experience or a qualia of what it's like to feel fear. You have a behavioral display, maybe your nonverbal posture, it may be an expression in your face, and there's also a physiological kind of correlate or marker of it. It may be that your heart rate's increasing. It may be that you see, you know, at the neuroendocrine level, cortisol levels rising. So emotions are thought to be these really, um, I don't know, critical to our survival responses to the environment that have a feeling state, a behavioral state, and a physiological level. So then what are positive emotions? Well, what's thought to sort of distinguish positive emotions from what we call the kind of traditional class of negative emotions, right? I mentioned fear, sadness, um, anger is that these are thought to be not just pleasant states, sort of using the word positive, um, but they're also thought to help guide us towards and signal rewards or opportunities in the environment. These could be, you know, financial opportunities or incentives. They could be connecting with another person. They could be savoring an achievement. But they're thought to signal things that are important to us and that are rewarding or meaningful. And so this can span a whole gamut of different kinds of positive states that range from joy or enthusiasm to pride to even gratitude, love, awe. There's a huge multitude of these positive states. But they're important for our health because they tell us important, about important opportunities in the environment and help us savor when we've accomplished or are currently experiencing one of these opportunities. And so, much of the work on positive emotions to date has really focused on what we think of as the 
more apparent sort of um, adaptive aspects of them. Um, this has been work in the field of what's been called positive psychology that in many ways has looked at the ways positive emotions foster healthy or adaptive outcomes. So we know a lot about that. We know about the ways in which positive emotions might foster creative thinking or enhance um, physical immunity to stressors. We even see um, the way that positive emotions are the sort of glue of social bonds. They help foster initiation of important relationships with other people, um, and they also help maintain those relationships. So not surprisingly, the sort of common conception of the mind when it comes to these positive states is that they are adaptive states. They're things that we should seek to experience, and they're things that when we do experience, bring about adaptive outcomes for us as individuals, sort of intra-individually, and us and our relationships with other people, so interpersonally. That's the common conception of positive emotions. But what I have been thinking about a lot, and the question that I've been really perplexed by is why that's been the sort of only or limited scope in the way we thought about these states. And so this is the sort of misconception of the mind that I think is really important that can be unearthed when we um, stop neglecting how positive emotions play a role in psychopathology. So this refers to an emerging line of work that's really come about uncovering the ways that positive emotions may also be predictive of more maladaptive psychological outcomes and health outcomes. Um, in many ways, this isn't surprising, but it does change how we think about what positive emotions are. So we see that positive emotions, um, particularly when they're experienced in heightened levels or the, mag or the duration is sort of prolonged, that it predicts a range of what we think of as maladaptive psychological outcomes or behavioral um, syndrome. So this includes positive emotions um, facilitating increased risk-taking, um, facilitating um, engagement in behaviors that we commonly think of as less adaptive, pathological gambling, problematic substance use. Um, it's even been linked in some perspective studies to higher mortality rates, related again to the fact that when we're in these heightened positive states, it lowers our inhibition. In some of our work with clinical populations, we find that um, heightened positive emotion, the magnitude, especially when it's not in the right context, so experiencing positive emotions um, in times of loss or in times of threat, that it's actually predictive of the risk for and um, recurrence of even severe mood disorders like bipolar disorder. So these are just some examples that suggest that maybe our common conception of the mind that positive emotions are these panaceas, that they're going to cure any types of psychological stress, that they're an antidote to those sorts of things, and foster this whole myriad of positive, um, not to sort of use overuse that word, but sort of foster a myriad of, of desirable outcomes. That seems to be now outdated, and it seems that the more we study the sort of broader portrait of these emotional states, these positive states, the more we'll see that, um, you know, in many ways, this common, this misconception of the mind of positive emotions always being good, um, that it needs to be challenged and overturned, and that it's sometimes they're adaptive, sometimes they're not, but it's really about when, why, and, and how we experience them. And I think the clinical disorders, the sort of severe psychiatric populations, really just help provide these 
sort of unique case examples for how we can more generally understand the way positive emotions work in the human mind and that they're not always good for us and that sometimes and in some degrees they may actually be things that we want to curb in. So my point in this is to say that it's important to study positive emotions and their quote downsides because they have practical and pressing kind of public health and societal motivations but also have important theoretical motivations for how we think about the mind and common misconceptions we have about it, especially with positive states. Yeah. So when we think about positive emotions, you know, the first thing you might wonder is how do I go about designing an experiment to test this? Do I just simply ask people how they feel? It's not quite that easy, um, nor is it that simple, because emotions are these complex phenomena that have multiple components. They have a subjective experience or qualia. They have behavioral signatures in the face, kind of prototypical ways that we move our faces around and contract muscles. And they also have really important, deeply rooted psychophysiological phenomena. So when we try to study emotions in the laboratory, what we do is we take a multimodal approach. We um, will have someone come to the lab, for example, and present them with a variety of what we call emotion evocative stimuli. This might range from externally presented stimuli, so having people look at really evocative emotional images. Um, these can be images of people, places, or things. Um, and we also will show people more dynamic stimuli. So this is watching film clips, for example, in the lab, where they can see over time different emotional scenes unfold. Um, that's one way to sort of elicit emotions. Another way is more sort of internally generated, what we call more ideographic stimuli. These can be having people recall personal autobiographical memories. Um, and both of these are what we call intra or individual kind level of uh, emotional elicitation. So watching stimuli on a screen, videos or images, or internally recalling emotional experiences. There's also a really important movement to sort of capture emotions as they unfold in real life, so sort of interacting with other people. Um, and this is where we really get into some of the richest emotional experiences that characterize our daily life. So we've done things like bringing two people into the lab and having them engage in an emotional conversation. Some of this is with um, romantic partners, where they will take turns sharing times of emotionally salient events or having them engage in either a positive conversation or a conflict conversation. Often not too easy to get long-term partners to find something to talk about that they have conflict over. And regardless of which of these elicitation techniques we use, what's really important on all of this is to sample emotion across multiple levels. We're having people rate what they're feeling using continuous rating dials. We're videotaping their behavior live and coding the expressions in their face as it unfolds and we're recording their body's sort of autonomic signatures, their heart rate, their respiration, their breathing. And in this, we've been able to answer a lot of important questions. So for example, we've looked at, you know, how are uh, self-conscious emotions impacted um, in individuals who differ in their level of self-awareness or self-presentation? So we've done things like have people watch uh, videos of themselves performing an embarrassing task and sort of looking at their emotional responses to the self. Um, we've also done some collaborations with a colleague of mine, Jamil Zaki, looking at how people experience and perceive emotions of another target while they're telling 
sort of a life event, a time of extreme loss or extreme joy. And we can track second by second how they're feeling watching and listening to someone else share an emotional event, and also how good or how empathically accurate they are at perceiving that other person's emotion. And here we found some interesting things with respect to positive emotion. Uh, for example, that the more sort of positive emotion you experience on a daily basis, um, the more confident you are in thinking that you're good at picking up others' emotions, your sort of perception of how empathically accurate you are. But actually in the moment, um, you don't perform quite so well in picking up others' emotions, um, especially their negative emotions. You actually perform more poorly. It's harder for you to maybe even drop down and get into another's emotional state when they're in distress. So positive emotions don't necessarily make us more empathic at all. So there's a lot of opportunities you have when you study emotion from an experimental perspective in terms of the kinds of stimuli you use to get someone to feel an emotion or elicit it, and then the kind of multi-channel response you can sample, all the way from higher order experience or even sort of meta-emotions, sort of thinking about what you feel about your emotions, even down to the body's most kind of basic responses when it comes to looking at how you know, our pupils dilate or our heart beats. So there's a lot of opportunities and it's all always really important to sort of take these multiple levels of analysis when sampling emotion in the lab. So it might seem strange, right, that I'm sitting here talking about positive emotions and at the same time talking about things like mortality rates, substance abuse, risk-taking, chronic impairment. Um, it may seem that I'm coupling constructs that don't really align together or don't seem to mesh together. And I think that's part of the problem in the study of positive emotion, to be really frank, that for whatever reason, we you know, always think of this, this construct of positive as being universally good. And maybe we shouldn't be calling positive emotions positive anymore. Um, that that might be part of the problem. That these states are like any other emotion, that it really depends on the context and what your goals are as to whether or not they're going to help you get there and meet your goals or whether they're going to get in the way and impede and hinder your ability to thrive. Yeah, so you, you, know, you think about how do you take, in many ways, these laboratory findings, right? These experimental studies about positive emotion. And since we're talking about psychopathology, we're talking about real-world health outcomes, how do you translate it? This has been probably one of the biggest challenges in the field um, and has been part of a movement um, that Greg Siegel, who's a faculty member at the University of Pittsburgh, has really been at the forefront of. Really what he talks about is how do we design the clinic of the future where you can actually intimately pair the science that we do in the lab with the treatments that real people coming into clinics receive. Um, and he's been suggesting that what might be really important is to stop using these laboratory tasks as merely scientific tools, but start actually implementing them as diagnostic, um, you know, potentially like diagnostic tools as well. That, you know, when we bring people into a clinic, we don't simply ask them how they're feeling, but we actually run them through tasks where we look at their sort of patterns of brain activation to emotional images, um, look at the cognitive processes that underlie the um, ability to retrieve and remember emotional material, things that people with depression and anxiety have difficulty with, and to use this information not simply to 
write an empirical journal article that we disseminate to other scientists, but actually then take this information and go back into the room with the individual patient and use this data to say, These, this is the kind of, you know, thought process and emotional profile you have, and here's the particular effective treatments that we would pair with it. Um, so this is something that is a challenge, but right now um, is a really exciting kind of um, next step on the horizon, is how do we take um, tools from the laboratory to the bench side, sort of create the clinic of the future, merge science and practice. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of Colorado Boulder, and I direct the Positive Emotion and Psychopathology Lab. And we have a kind of a two-pronged approach. The first is to run basic laboratory studies where we elicit and measure emotion, doing this both in what we call healthy adults, but also adults suffering from um, mood disorders. So we look at bipolar disorder and depression. And we use this information in sort of part one to gain a basic scope of what are the psychological processes that characterize these groups when it comes to positive emotion. Um, what are the ways in which people's patterns of reactivity or, or ability to regulate emotions may be different among these groups. And then what we do is we take these scientific findings and in collaboration with um, uh, some of our intervention colleagues um, or people who do the sort of day-to-day -day kind of psychotherapeutic work that's so important is we take these laboratory findings and translate them to intervention studies. So for example, we may take some of the tasks that we use that look at attentional biases to emotion, what we call dot probe tasks, um, as well as some of our classic emotion reactivity and regulation tasks, paradigms drawn from research by James Gross and others. And instead of just looking at them in a single moment in a lab study, we now are using these as pre and post treatment markers. So we'll take lab tasks and look at them in a group of people before they begin treatment for interventions that are common and empirically supported, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, dialectical behavioral therapy, and then reassess with those same tasks post-treatment. And here be able to look for the first time, not just whether a treatment changes or alleviate symptoms of depression, but what actual processes in the mind are, are changing as a function of those treatments. So really kind of start to get at the mechanisms. So that's the way in which we take laboratory tasks to first map a phenomena and the way that phenomena may be awry among individuals with depression or bipolar disorder. And then next step, take that knowledge and start to see then, can interventions change that phenomena? ideally for the better in, in the direction of the treatment goals that the particular individual has. So that's why we're trying to start merging some of the basic lab science we, we do with sort of the, we call the translational work of then translating that lab study to um, effective real world outcomes for people. Yeah, so the field of what I've been talking about, positive emotion and psychopathology, sort of that intersection between the affective scientists who are in the trenches in the lab studying emotion, and then the clinical psychologists, on the other hand, who are, you know, trying to treat and confront real-world suffering in everyday life, merging these two worlds, um, that's a new field. Um, and it's a field that um, my lab is at the forefront of. Um, and now I think the broader scientific community is appreciating. Uh, at first, when I got into this work, I think it seemed a little strange, a little counterintuitive um, that we were studying positive emotions in a way that they hadn't been thought about before. And to say, you know, sort of gasp, like that they could, you know, sometimes be um, 
inappropriate or maladaptive or something you might actually want to rein in or suppress. I think that was very different from the mainstream approach to studying positive emotions. So for better or worse, um, there has been some mainstream attention to this work. We've been called the dark side of, of happiness. Um, you know, I've had colleagues joke about it being like haters of positive emotion. And, that's like the furthest thing from the truth. I'm actually incredibly fascinated with positive emotions. I got started first in this field by working in a lab that um, was a sort of basic social psychology lab looking at human flourishing and well-being. Um, but I couldn't help at that time, being a graduate student at Berkeley in clinical psychology, notice that I would be working with patients, particularly those who were manic. So these are people with a history of bipolar disorder who were describing these same kinds of feelings, feeling elated, excited, overjoyed, but they were um, you know, being hospitalized. They were losing their life savings. They were um, you know, engaging in really, really risky, risky kind of behaviors, driving really fast, um, you know, engaging in like sexual liaisons with a bunch of strangers. And I thought, is this the same thing? They're feeling positive, but there's all these negative consequences. Um, so that's kind of where it began for me, and we've been really pushing this forward ever since. Um, but, you know, to date when I've been looking for, you know, edited book volumes on the topic, there's nothing there. I wasn't sure at first how the field of um, what we think of as positive psychology, or just generally scientists who study positive emotion, what they would think of this. Um, and the response has been surprisingly not to overuse the word positive, but, but good. I think everyone can see that, you know, emotions are far, far more complicated than we appreciated. Um, I don't know if it was Einstein who says, like, nature doesn't give up her mysteries easily. But that's exactly the thing with positive emotion. Of course it's not as simple as we thought. Of course it's not this sort of unidimensional sort of state that's, that's universally good and sought after. It's got multiple sides and multiple facets, just like every construct. And so, um, I've actually gotten a lot of great support from wonderful pioneers in the field, you know, Marty Seligman, Ed Diener, Barbara Fredrickson, Decker Keltner, they've all really appreciated this, this notion that we need to expand our horizon of what positive emotions are, and that um, if we apply them to clinical psychology, not only will we more broadly understand what positive emotion is and isn't, but then we can actually take some of this data and, and translate it into real-world solutions. For example, um, you know, thus far, a lot of treatments for clinical disorders focused on alleviating suffering. How do we reduce symptoms of depression? How do we reduce symptoms of anxiety? And now we're seeing that there's another piece to it. It may be that we try to build positive emotions. If you're someone with depression, for example, who has trouble with um, experiencing appropriate amounts of pleasure, but we may actually translate these findings to see, for example, that um, the, uh, like in, in the context of bipolar disorder, we're now seeing treatments being developed that are talking about down-regulating positive emotions. Um, that when you experience too much positive emotion, you need to sort of engage in what we call emotion de-escalation strategies. Especially after a really great rewarding life event, people with bipolar disorder are at increased risk for sort of um, escalating into mania. So now we see, you know, it's, it's harrowing to say this, but after a job promotion, a marriage, a success in these individuals, we want to monitor their positive emotion levels and if they start increasing to sort of, sort of identify that right away and sort of bring it down. 
Another thing we've been working on is um, the pursuit of positive emotion. There's so much popular attention and becoming happy, being happy, finding all these solutions and books that we can read to sort of attain the state. But we actually find um, that the more you try to pursue positive emotion, it puts you at increased risk for clinical depression and bipolar disorder. So we're actually working on teaching patients who have these histories not to prioritize positive emotions so much, not to sort of crave or want it to such an extreme state, but that may actually backfire. So we're actually teaching rather than pursuing happiness and sort of setting that as your goal when you come into treatment, to instead focus on sort of acceptance of all emotional states and actually the prioritization of a diverse experience of all emotions. Emotional diversity is actually better for us than just pushing towards only experiencing positive states. You know, this, this idea that um, telling people not to experience too much positive emotion that's not going to go over well, right? You're going to get resistance and backlash. Um, and in fact, you know, um, so I, I, you know, primarily do research and teaching, but um, I also have a background and licensure in clinical psychology and have worked a lot with people with history of mania. And that's one of the biggest predictors of treatment non-adherence and dropout, is to bring someone in and tell them we need to tone down your positive emotions. No one wants to do that. Um, so what do you do, right? Like, how do you get people to not only understand that there's data suggesting that positive emotions aren't always good, but how do you get people to want to rein in their positive emotions at the right time when it's in their best interest, right? We're not saying eliminate positive emotions. Um, they're wonderful things, and they have all these um, great attributes that, that that help us in many ways, but those particular contexts where they're not helping us, how do you get people to buy into that, basically? And I think there's a couple ways. I mean, one is not to say, like, squash positive emotions, calm down right now. That rarely works. I think there's a couple approaches that um, we've seen scientifically and um, been working on applying these translationally to, to patients that, that do a better job. One is the insight that emotional diversity is healthy. So we've been doing some work um, with colleagues like Michael Norton and Jordi Koidbach that look at the human mind as an emotional ecosystem, right? We know that in the physical ecosystem, biodiversity is healthy and important. People can buy into that. We know that biodiversity, you know, fosters resistance to pathogens and invasive species. So when you explain to someone that the human mind may be not so different, right, that it's important to have a diverse array of emotions, um, you know, joy, uh, sadness, uh, you know, love, admiration, guilt, that these are all important pieces of our internal human emotional ecosystem, um, people can understand that and people appreciate that diversity is important, that it, maybe it's some sort of like spice of mental life, I don't know. But when you frame it that way, people are more readily able to not put such a premium on positive emotions and in fact, in situations, try to foster other kinds of experiences if they think that it's part of, you know, a more diverse psychological life and repertoire. So framing it less as, you know, pushing positive emotions down, but sort of letting all emotions grow and thrive because they're all important sources of information for us. We have them for a reason, right? They have evolutionary goals. People can understand that. And so that's one way we've been thinking about trying to frame this is that 
you know, you don't just want to grow one kind of plant in your garden, you want to have a diverse array. Um, and so we have some work where we've been uh, sort of pushing this notion of what we call emotional diversity and the way that it fosters a more adaptive um, psychological sort of you know, uh, repertoire for the individual. That's one way. The other way, too, is to kind of show people um, what happens when you put your primary focus and the goal on the pursuit of positive emotion. And you can do this you know, through large-scale laboratory studies and even sort of case study designs, looking at how much people want to experience positive emotion and how that really sets our goals of resisting other emotions and really pushing for joy and excitement even in contexts where it doesn't suit us, particularly in U.S. cultures where we know that there's cultural valuation of these higher also positive states. We should be excited, we should be joyful, you know, all the time. Um, and you can actually show people that, you know, the extent to which they value those emotions and want to experience them in individual contexts that actually predicts them feeling less good about them. So the more you want to feel happy, the more you say, my ideal state if I could choose would be to be excited or joyful. If I then put you in a context where we have you watch a happy film or read a happy story, even recall a happy memory, the extent to which you wanted to feel that way predicts reductions in actually feeling that way in the moment because we set standards when we want to feel something and it often sets us up for disappointment. So you can show people in some ways how this overvaluation of feeling positive can backfire. And usually that can help sort of people scale down the wanting and maybe even open up their mindset to a broader variety of options. I think that um, this work we've been doing, positive emotion psychopathology, um, has the potential to change the way we think about all kinds of emotions, right? I'm focusing on positive emotions here, but I think you could, you could bring in negative emotions too um, to broaden our scope of what emotions are. Right, that they're not inherently good or bad. There's this idea we call emotional valence. That's why we call certain things positive emotions and certain things negative. Um, that that valence label is not its inherent value. Um, that really, I think what it has the possibility to do is suggest that whether or not an emotion is adaptive for you, it's all dependent, what we call context sensitive, that um, Emotions are really fine-tuned to help us navigate particular situations, particular encounters, and um, no one emotion is necessarily always good or always bad for a situation. And I think that's what this has the possibility to say, that we should throw out and abandon simplistic notions of what I call valence is value, that negative emotions are bad, we should avoid those, that positive emotions are good, we should embrace them, but that really we should think more carefully about when, where, and how a given emotion will help us or hinder us.